Chapter Eighteen, Part One of An Antarctic Mystery. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. An Antarctic Mystery by Jules Verne. Chapter Eighteen, Part One: A Revelation. The following day, the twenty-ninth of December, at six in the morning, the schooner set sail with a northeast wind and this time her course was due south the two succeeding days passed wholly without incident neither land nor any sign of land was observed the men on the halbrane took great hauls of fish to their own satisfaction and ours it was new year's day eighteen forty four months and seventeen days since i had left the kerguelens and two months and five days since the halbrane had sailed from the falklands the half-breed between whom and myself an odd kind of tacit understanding subsisted, approached the bench on which I was sitting. The captain was in his cabin, and West was not in sight, with a plain intention of conversing with me. The subject may easily be guessed. "'Dirk Peters,' said I, taking up the subject at once, "'do you wish that we should talk of him?' "'Him,' he murmured. "'You have remained faithful to his memory, Dirk Peters.' "'Forget him, sir? Never!' He is always there before you? Always. So many dangers shared. That makes brothers. No, it makes a father and his son. Yes, and I have seen America again. But Pym, poor Pym, he is still beyond there. Dirk Peters, I asked, have you any idea of the route which you and Arthur Pym followed in the boat after your departure from Salal Island? None, sir. Poor Pym had no longer any instrument you know, sea-machines, for looking at the sun. We could not know, except that for eight days the current pushed us towards the south, and the wind also, a fine breeze, and a fair sea, and our shirts for a sail. Yes, white linen shirts, which frightened your prisoner, Nunu. Perhaps so, I did not notice. But if Pym had said so, Pym must be believed. And during those eight days you were able to supply yourselves with food? Yes, sir, and the days after, we and the savage, you know, the three turtles that were in the boat, these animals contain a store of fresh water, and their flesh is sweet, even raw. Oh, raw flesh, sir. He lowered his voice and threw a furtive glance around him. It would be impossible to describe the frightful expression of the half-breed's face as he thus recalled the terrible scenes of the grampus. And it was not the expression of a cannibal of Australia or the New Hebrides, but that of a man who is pervaded by an insurmountable horror of himself. "'Was it not on the first of March, Dirk Peters?' I asked, "'that you perceived for the first time the veil of grey vapour, shot with luminous and moving rays?' "'I do not remember, sir. But if Pym says it was so, Pym must be believed.' "'Did he never speak to you of fiery rays which fell from the sky?' I did not use the term polar aurora, lest the half-breed should not understand it. Never, sir, said Jerk Peters, after some reflection. Did you not remark that the colour of the sea changed, grew white like milk, and that its surface became ruffled round your boat? It may have been so, sir. I did not observe. The boat went on and on, and my head went with it. And then the fine powder, as fine as ashes that fell? I don't remember it. Was it snow? "'Snow? Yes. No. 
The weather was warm. What did Pym say? Pym must be believed. He lowered his voice and continued. But Pym will tell you all that, sir. He knows. I do not know. He saw. And you will believe him. Yes, Dirk Peters, I shall believe him. We are to go in search of him, are we not? I hope so. After we have found William Guy and the sailors of the Jane? Yes, after. And even if we do not find them? Yes, even in that case. I think I shall induce our captain. I think he will not refuse. No, he will not refuse to bring help to a man, a man like him. And yet, I said, if William Guy and his people are living, we can admit that Arthur Pym— Living? Yes, living, cried the half-breed. By the great spirit of my father's he is. He is waiting for me, my poor Pym. How joyful he will be when he clasps his old Dirk in his arms, and I— I, when I feel him there, there. And the huge chest of the man heaved like a stormy sea. Then it went away, leaving me inexpressibly affected by the revelation of the tenderness for his unfortunate companion that lay deep in the heart of this semi-savage. In the meantime I said but little to Captain Len Guy, whose whole heart and soul were set on the rescue of brother, of the possibility of our finding Arthur Gordon Pym, time enough if in the course of this strange enterprise of ours we succeeded in that object to urge upon him one still more visionary at length on the seventh of january according to dirk peters who had fixed it only by the time that had expired we arrived at the place where nunu the savage breathed his last lying in the bottom of the boat on that day an observation gave eighty six degrees thirty three minutes for the latitude the longitude remaining the same between the forty-second and the forty-third meridian. Here it was, according to the half-breed, that the two fugitives were parted after the collision between the boat and the floating mass of ice. But a question now arose, since the mass of ice carrying away Dirk Peters had drifted towards the north. Was this because it was subjected to the action of a counter-current? Yes, that must have been so for our schooner had not felt the influence of the current which had guided her on leaving the Falklands for fully four days. And yet there is nothing surprising in that, for everything is variable in the austral seas. Happily the fresh breeze from the northeast continued to blow, and the Halbrane made progress towards higher water, thirteen degrees in advance upon Weddell's ship, and two degrees upon the Jane. As for the land, islands, or continent, which Captain Len Guy was seeking on the surface of that vast ocean, it did not appear. I was well aware that he was gradually losing confidence in our enterprise. As for me, I was possessed by the desire to rescue Arthur Pym, as well as the survivors of the Jane. And yet, how could he have survived? But then, the half-breed's fixed idea. Supposing our captain were to give the order to go back, what would Dirk Peters do? throw himself into the sea rather than return northwards this it was which made me dread some act of violence on his part when he heard the greater number of the sailors protesting against this insensate voyage and talking of putting the ship about especially towards hearne who was stealthily inciting his comrades of the falklands to insubordination it was absolutely necessary not to allow discipline to decline or discouragement to grow among the crew. 
so that, on the 7th of January, Captain Len Guy, at my request, assembled the men and addressed them in the following words. Sailors of the Halbrane, since our departure from Salel Island, the schooner has gained two degrees southwards, and I now inform you that, conformably with the engagement signed by Mr. Jorling, four thousand dollars, that is two thousand dollars for each degree, are due to you and will be paid at the end of the voyage. These words were greeted with some murmurs of satisfaction, but not with cheers, except those of Hurligurly the boatswain and Endicott the cook, which found no echo. On the 13th of January a conversation took place between the boatswain and myself of a nature to justify my anxiety concerning the temper of our crew. The men were at breakfast, with the exception of drop and stern. The schooner was cutting the water under a stiff breeze. I was walking between the fore and main masts, watching the great flights of birds wheeling about the ship with deafening clangor, and the petrels occasionally perching on our yards. No effort was made to catch or shoot them. It would have been useless cruelty, since their oily and stringy flesh is not eatable. At this moment Hurligurly approached me, looked attentively at the birds, and said, "'I remark one thing, Mr. Jorling.' "'What is it, Bosun? "'That these birds do not fly so directly south "'as they did up to the present. "'Some of them are setting north. "'I have noticed the same fact. "'And I add, Mr. Jorling, "'that those who are below there will come back without delay. "'And you conclude from this? "'I conclude that they feel the approach of winter.' "'Of winter?' "'Undoubtedly. "'No, no, Bosun. "'The temperature is so high "'that the birds can't want to get to less cold regions "'so prematurely.' "'Oh, prematurely, Mr. Orling?' "'Yes, Bosun. Do we not know that navigators have always been able to frequent the Antarctic waters until the month of March?' "'Not at such a latitude. Besides, there are precocious winters as well as precocious summers. The fine season this year was full two months in advance, and it is to be feared the bad season may come sooner than usual.' "'That is very likely,' I replied. After all, it does not apply to us, since our campaign will be certainly over in three weeks. If some obstacle does not arrive beforehand, Mr. Jorling. And what obstacle? For instance, a continent stretching to the south and barring our way. A continent, Hurligurly? I should not at all be surprised. And in fact, there would be nothing surprising in it. As for the lands seen by Dirk Peters, said the boatswain, were the men of the Jane might have landed on one or another of them, I don't believe in them. Why? Because William Guy, who can only have had a small craft at his disposal, could not have got so far into these seas. I do not feel quite so sure of that. Nevertheless, Mr. Jorling, what would be so surprising in William Guy's being carried to land somewhere by the action of currents? He did not remain on board his boat for eight months, I suppose. His companions and he may have been able to land on an island, or even on a continent, and that is a sufficient motive for us to pursue our search. No doubt, but all are not of your opinion, replied Hurligurly, shaking his head. I know, said I, and that is what makes me most anxious. Is the ill-feeling increasing? I fear so, Mr. Jarling. The satisfaction of having gained several hundreds of dollars is already lessened.
and the prospect of gaining a few more hundreds does not put a stop to disputes and yet the prize is tempting from zalal island to the pole admitting that we might get there is six degrees now six degrees at two thousand dollars each makes twelve thousand dollars for thirty men that is four hundred dollars a head a nice little sum to slip into one's pocket on the return of the halbrane but notwithstanding that fellow hearn works so wickedly upon his comrades that i believe they are ready to bout ship in spite of anybody i can believe that of the recruits boatswain but the old crew hum there are three or four of those who are beginning to reflect and they are not easy in their minds about the prolongation of the voyage i fancy captain len guy and his lieutenant will know how to get themselves obeyed we shall see mr jorling but may it not that our captain himself will get disheartened that the sense of his responsibility will prevail and that he will renounce his enterprise yes this is what i feared and there was no remedy on that side as for my friend endicott mr jorling i answer for him as for myself we would go to the end of the world if the world has an end did the captain want to go there true we too dirk peters and yourself are but a few to be a law to the others and what do you think of the half-breed i ask well our men appear to accuse him chiefly of the prolongation of the voyage you see mr jorling though you have a good deal to do with it you pay and pay well while this crazy fellow dirk peters persists in asserting that his poor pym is still living his poor pym who was drowned or frozen or crushed killed anyhow one way or another eleven years ago so completely was this my own belief that i never discussed the subject with the half-breed you see mr jorling resumed the boatswain at the first some curiosity was felt about dirk peters then after he saved martin holt it was interest certainly he was no more talkative than before and the bear came no oftener out of his den but now we know what he is and no one likes him the better for that at all events it was he who induced our captain by talking of land to the south of salal island to make this voyage and it is owing to him that he has reached the eighty-sixth degree of latitude that is quite true boatswain and so mr jorling i am always afraid that one of these days somebody will do peters an ill turn dirk peters would defend himself and i should pity the man who laid a finger on him quite so it would not be good for anybody to be in his hands for they could bend iron but then all being against him he would be forced into the hold well well we have not yet come to that i hope and i count on you hurly-gurly to prevent any against dirk peters reason with your men make them understand that we have time to return to the falklands before the end of the fine season their reproaches must not be allowed to provide the captain with an excuse for turning back before the object is attained count on me mr jorling i will serve you to the best of my ability you will not repent of doing so hurly-gurly nothing is easier than to add a round zero to the four hundred dollars which each man is to have if that man be something more than a sailor even were his functions simply those of boatswain on board the halbrane End of chapter 18, part 1
Chapter Eighteen, Part Two of An Antarctic Mystery. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. An Antarctic Mystery by Jules Verne. Chapter Eighteen, Part Two. A Revelation. Nothing important occurred on the thirteenth and fourteenth, but a fresh fall in the temperature took place. Captain Len Guy called my attention to this, pointing out the flocks of birds continuously flying north. While he was speaking to me, I felt that his last hopes were fading, and who could wonder? Of the land indicated by the half-breed, nothing was seen, and we were already more than one hundred and eighty miles past Solal Island. At every point of the compass was the sea, nothing but the vast sea with its desert horizon which the sun's disk had been nearing since the twenty-first and would touch on the twenty-first march prior to during the six months of the austral night honestly was it possible to admit that william guy and his five companions could have accomplished such a distance on a craft and was there one chance in a hundred that they could ever be recovered on the fifteenth of january an observation most carefully taken gave forty three degrees thirteen minutes longitude and eighty eight degrees seventeen minutes latitude the halbrane was less than two degrees from the pole captain len guy did not seek to conceal the result of this observation and the sailors knew enough of nautical calculation to understand it besides if the consequences had to be explained to them were not Holt and Hardy there to do this, and Hearn to exaggerate them to the utmost? During the afternoon I had indubitable proof that the sealing-master had been working on the minds of the crew. The men emerging at the foot of the mainmast talked in whispers and cast evil glances at us. Two or three sailors made threatening gestures undisguisedly. Then arose such angry mutterings that West could not be deaf to them. He strode forward and called out, "'Silence there! The first man who speaks will have to reckon with me!' Captain Len Guy was shut up in his cabin, but every moment I expected to see him come out, give one last long look around the wastes of waters, and then order the ship's course to be reversed. Nevertheless, on the next day the schooner was sailing in the same direction, unfortunately, for the circumstances had come some gravity. A mist was beginning to come down on us. I could not keep still. My apprehensions were redoubled. It was that West was only awaiting the order to change the helm. What mortal anguish the captain's must be! I understood too well that he would not give that order without hesitation. For several days past I had not seen the half-breed, or at least I had not exchanged a word with him. He was boycotted by the whole crew, with the exception of the boatswain, who was careful to address him, although rarely got a word in return. Dirk Peters took not the faintest notice of this state of things. He remained completely absorbed in his own thoughts. Yet, had he heard West give the word to steer north, I know not what acts of violence he might have been driven to. He seemed to avoid me. Was this from a desire not to compromise me? On the seventeenth in the afternoon, however, Dirk Peters manifested an intention of speaking to me, and never, never could I have imagined what I was to learn in that interview. It was about half-past two, and, not feeling well, I had gone to my cabin, where the side window was open, that at the back was closed. I heard a knock at the door. 
and asked who was there. Dirk Peters, was the reply. You want to speak to me? Yes. I'm coming out. If you please, I should prefer. May I come into your cabin? Come in. He entered and shut the door behind him. Without rising, I signed to him to seat himself in an armchair, but he remained standing. "'What do you want of me, Dirk Peters?' I asked at length, as he seemed unable to make up his mind to speak. "'I want to tell you something, because it seems that you should know it, and you only, in the crew, they must never know it.' "'If it is a grave matter, and you fear any indiscretion, Dirk Peters, why do you speak to me?' "'If I must, ah, yes, I must. It is impossible to keep it there. It weighs on me like a stone.' and Dirk Peters struck his breast violently. Then he resumed, Yes, I, I am always afraid it may escape me during my sleep, and that someone will hear it, for I dream of it, and in dreaming. You dream, I replied, and of what? Of him, of him. Therefore it is that I sleep in corners, all alone, for fear that his true name should be discovered. Then it struck me that the half-breed was perhaps about to respond to an inquiry which I had not yet made, why he had gone to live at the Falklands under the name of Hunt after leaving Illinois. I put the question to him, and he replied, It is not that, no, it is not that I wish. I insist, Dirk Peters, and I desire to know in the first place for what reason did you not remain in America, for what reason you chose the Falklands. For what reason, sir? Because I wanted to get near Pym, my poor Pym because I hope to find an opportunity at the Falklands of embarking on a whaling-ship bound for the southern sea. But that name of Hunt? I would not bear my own name any longer, on account of the affair of the Grampus. The half-breed was alluding to the scene of the short straw, or lot-drawing on board the American brig, when it was decided between Augustus Bernard, Arthur Pym, Jerk Peters, and Parker the sailor, that one of the four should be sacrificed, as food for the three others. I remembered the obstinate resistance of Arthur Pym, and how it was impossible for him to refuse to take the tragedy about to be performed. He says this himself, and the horrible act, whose remembrance must poison the existence of all those who had survived it. Oh, that lot-drawing, the short straws, were little splinters of wood of uneven length which Arthur held in his hand. The shortest was to designate him who should be immolated and he speaks of the sort of involuntary, fierce desire to deceive his corn that he felt to cheat is the word he uses. But he did not cheat, and he asked pardon for having had the idea. Let us try to put ourselves in his place. He made up his mind and held out his hand, closed on the four slips. Dirk Peters drew the first. Fate favoured him. He had nothing more to fear. Arthur Pym calculated the one more chance was against him. Augustus Bernard drew in turn, save two he, and now Arthur Pym reckoned up the exact chances Parker and himself. At that moment all the ferocity, the tiger entered into his soul. He conceived an intense and devilish hatred of his poor comrade, his fellow man. Five minutes elapsed before Parker dared to draw. At length Arthur Pym, standing with eyes closed, not knowing whether the lot was for or against him, felt a hand seize his own. It was the hand of Dirk Peters. Arthur Pym had escaped death. 
and then the half-breed came upon Parker and stabbed him in the back. The frightful repast followed immediately, and words are not sufficient to convey to the mind the horror of the reality. Yes, I knew that hideous story, not a fable, as I had long believed. This was what had happened on board the Grampus on the 16th of July, 1827, and vainly did I try to understand Dirk Peters' reason for recalling it to my recollection. Well, Dirk Peters, I said, I will ask you, since you were anxious to hide your name, what it was that induced you to reveal it when the Halbrane was moored off Salal Island. Why did you not keep to the name of Hunt? Sir, understand me. There was hesitation about going further. They wanted to turn back. This was decided, and then I thought that by telling you who I was, Dirk Peters, of the Grampus, my poor Pym's companion, I should be heard. They would believe with me that he was still living. They would go in search of him. And yet it was a serious thing to do, to acknowledge that I was Dirk Peters, he who had killed Parker. But hunger, devouring hunger. Come, come, Dirk Peters, said I. You exaggerate. If the lot had fallen to you, you would have incurred the fate of Parker. You cannot be charged with a crime. Sir, would Parker's family speak of it as you do? His family? Had he then relations? Yes, and that is why Pym changed his name in the narrative. Parker's name was not Parker, it was... Arthur Pym was right, I said, interrupting him quickly. And as for me, I do not wish to know Parker's real name. Keep this secret. No, I will tell it to you. It weighs too heavily on me, and I shall be relieved, perhaps, when I have told you, Mr. Jorling. No, Dirk Peters, no. His name was Holt, Ned Holt. Holt, I exclaimed, the same name as our sailing-master's, who is his own brother, sir. Martin Holt? Yes, understand me, his brother. But he believes that Ned Holt perished in the wreck of the Grampus with the rest. It was not so, and if he learned that I... Just at that instant, a violent shock flung me out of my bunk. The schooner had made such a lurch to the port side that she was near foundering. I heard an angry voice cry out, "'What dog is at the helm?' It was the voice of West, and the person was Hearn. I rushed out of my cabin. "'Have you let the wheel go?' repeated West, who had seized Hearn by the collar of his jersey. "'Lieutenant, I don't know.' "'Yes, I tell you, you have let it go a little more, and the schooner would have capsized under full sail.' Gratian cried West, calling one of the sailors. "'Take the helm, and you, Hearn.' go down into the hold. On a sudden the cry of land resounded, and every eye was turned southward. End of chapter 18, part 2
indicate an island or a continent? And, whether a continent or an island, did not a disappointment await us? Could they be there, whom we had come to seek? And Arthur Pym, who was dead, unquestionably dead, in spite of Dirk Peters' assertions, had he ever set foot on this land? When the welcome word resounded on board the Jane, on the 17th January, 1828, a day full of incidents, according to Arthur Pym's diary, it was succeeded by land on the starboard bow. Such might have been the signal from the masthead of the Halbrane. The outline of land, lightly drawn above the skyline, were visible on this side. The land announced to the sailors of the Jane was the wild and barren Bennet Islet. Less than one degree south of it lay Salal Island, then fertile, habitable, and inhabited, and on which Captain Len Guy had hoped to meet his fellow countrymen. But what would this unknown island, five degrees further off, in the depths of the southern sea, be for our schooner? Was it the goal so ardently desired, and so earnestly sought for? Were the two brothers, William and Len Guy, to meet at this place? Would the Halbrane come there to the end of a voyage, whose success would be definitely secured by the restoration of the survivors of the Jane to their country? I repeat that I was just like the half-breed. Our aim was not merely to discover the survivors, nor was success in this matter the only success we looked for. However, since land was before our eyes, we must get nearer to it first. That cry of land caused an immediate diversion of our thoughts. I no longer dwelt upon the secret Dirk Peters had just told me, and perhaps the half-breed forgot it also, for he rushed to the bow and fixed his eyes immovably on the horizon. As for West, whom nothing could divert from his duty, he repeated his commands. Gratien came to take the helm, and Hearn was shut up in the hold. On the whole this was a just punishment, and none of the old crew protested against it, for Hearn's inattention awkwardness had really endangered the schooner for a short time only. Five or six of the Falkland sailors did, however, murmur a little. A sign from the mate silenced them, and they returned at once to their posts. Needless to say, Captain Len Guy, upon hearing the cry of the lookout man, had tumbled up from his cabin, and eagerly examined this land at ten or twelve miles' distance. As I have said, I was no longer thinking about the secret Dirk Peters had confided to me. Besides, so long as the secret remained between us two, and neither would betray it, there was nothing to fear. But if ever an unlucky accident were to reveal to Martin Holt that his brother's name had been changed to Parker, that the unfortunate man had not perished in the shipwreck of the Grampus, but had been sacrificed to save his companions from perishing hunger, that Dirk Peters, to whom Martin Holt himself owed his life, had killed him with his own hand, what might not happen then? This was the reason why the half-breed shrank from any expression of thanks from Martin Holt why he avoided Martin Holt, the victim's brother. The boatswain had just struck six bells. The schooner was sailing with the caution, demanded by navigation in unknown seas. There might be shoals or reefs barely hidden under the surface, on which she might run aground or be wrecked. As things stood with the Halbrane, and even admitting that she could be floated again, an accident would have rendered her return impossible before the winter set in. We had urgent need that every chance should be in our favour, and not one against us. West had given orders to shorten sail. When the boatswain had furled the top-gallant sail, the top-sail, and the royal, 
the halbrane remained under her mainsail her foresail and her jib sufficient canvas to cover the distance that separated her from land in a few hours captain len guy immediately heaved the lead which showed a depth of twenty fathoms several other soundings showed that the coast which was very steep was probably prolonged like a wall under the water nevertheless as the bottom might happen to rise sharply instead of following the slope of the coast we did not venture to proceed out of the sounding line in hand the weather was still beautiful although the sky was overcast by a mist from the southeast to southwest owing to this there was some difficulty in identifying the vague outlines which stood out like a floating vapour in the sky disappearing and then reappearing between the breaks of the mist however we all agreed to regard this land as from twenty-five to thirty fathoms in height at least at its highest part no we would not admit that we were the victims of a dilution and yet our uneasy minds feared that it might be so is it not natural after all for the heart to be assailed by a thousand apprehensions as we near the end of any enterprise at this thought my mind became confused and dreamy the halbrane seemed to be reduced to the dimensions of a small boat lost in this boundless space the contrary of that limitless sea of which edgar poe speaks where like a living body the ship grows larger when we have charts or even sailing directions instruct us concerning the hydrography of the coasts the nature of the landfalls the bays and the creeks we may sail along boldly in every other region the master of the ship must not defer the order to cast anchor near the shore until the morrow but where we were what an amount of prudence was necessary and yet no manifest obstacle was before us moreover we had no cause to fear that the light would fail us during the sunny night at this season the sun did not set so soon under the western horizon and its rays bathed the vast antarctic zone in unabated light from that day forward the ship's log recorded that the temperature fell continuously the thermometer in the air and in the shade did not mark more than thirty-two degrees zero degrees fahrenheit and when plunged into the water it only indicated twenty-six degrees three point three three degrees celsius below zero what could be the cause of this fall since we were at the height of the southern summer the crew were obliged to resume their woollen clothing which they had left off a month previously the schooner however was sailing before the wind and these first cold blasts were less keenly felt yet we recognized the necessity of reaching our goal as soon as possible to linger in this region or to expose ourselves to the danger of wintering out would be to tempt providence Captain Len Guy tested the direction of the currents by heavy lead lines, and discovered that it was beginning to deviate from its former course. "'Whether it is a continent,' he said, "'that lies before us, or whether it is an island, we have at present no means of determining. If it be a continent, we must conclude that the current has an issue towards the southeast.' "'And it is quite possible,' I replied, "'that the solid part of the Antarctic region may be reduced to a mere polar mound in any case it is well to note any of those observations which are likely to be accurate that is what i am doing mr jorling and we shall bring back a mass of information about this portion of the southern sea which will prove useful to navigators if ever any venture to come so far south captain 
We have penetrated so far, thanks to the help of particular circumstances, the earliness of the summer season, an abnormal temperature, and a rapid thaw. Such conditions may only occur once in twenty or fifty years. Wherefore, Mr. Jorling, I thank Providence for this, and hope revives in me to some extent. As the weather has been constantly fine, what is there to make it impossible for my brother and my fellow countrymen to have landed on this coast, whither the wind and the tide bore them? What our schooner has done, their boat may have done. They surely did not start on a voyage which might be prolonged to an indefinite time without a proper supply of provisions. Why should they not have found the resources as those afforded to them by the island of Salal during many long years? They had ammunition and arms elsewhere. Fish abound in these waters, waterfowl also. Oh, yes, my heart is full of hope, and I wish I were a few hours older. Without being quite so sanguine as Langai, I was glad to see he had regained his hopeful mood. Perhaps his investigations were successful. I might be able to have them continued in Arthur Pym's interest, even into the heart of this strange land which we were approaching. The Halbrane was going along slowly on these clear waters, which swarmed with fish, belonging to the same species, as we had already met. The seabirds were more numerous, and were evidently not frightened, for they kept flying around the mast, or perching in the yards. Several whitish ropes, about five or six feet long, were brought on board. They were chaplets formed of millions of shellfish. Whales, spouting jets of feathery water from their blowholes, appeared at a distance, and I remarked that all of them took a southerly direction. There was therefore reason to believe that the sea extended far and wide in that direction. The schooner covered two or three miles of her course without any increase of speed. This coast, evidently, stretched from northwest to southeast. Nevertheless, the telescopes revealed no distinctive features, even after three hours' navigation. The crew, gathered together on the forecastle, were looking on without revealing their impressions. West, after going aloft to the forecross trees, where he had remained ten minutes, had reported nothing precise. Stationed at the port side, leaning my elbows on the bulwarks, I closely watched the skyline, broken only towards the east. At this moment the boatswain rejoined me, and without preface said, "'Will you allow me to give you my opinion, Mr. Jorling?' "'Give it, Boson, I replied, at the risk of my not adopting it, if I don't agree with it. "'It is correct, and according as we get nearer, one must really be blind not to adopt it. "'And what idea have you got?' "'That this is not land which lies before us, Mr. Jorling.' "'What is it you are saying?' "'Look attentively, putting one finger before your eyes. "'Look there, out at starboard.' "'I did as Hurley-Gurley directed. "'Do you see?' he began again. May I lose my liking for my grog, if these heights do not change place, not with regard to the schooner, but with regard to themselves. And what do you conclude from this? That they are moving icebergs. Icebergs? Sure enough, Mr. Jorling. Was not the boatswain mistaken? Were we in for a disappointment? Were there only drifting ice mountains in the distance, instead of a shore? Presently there was no doubt on the subject. For some time past, the crew had no longer believed the existence of land in that direction. Ten minutes afterwards, the man in the crow's nest announced that several icebergs were coming northwest, in an oblique direction, 
into the course of the Halbrane. This news produced great sensation on board. Our last hope was suddenly extinguished, and what a blow to Captain Len Guy. We should have to seek land of the austral zone under higher latitudes, without being sure of ever coming across it. And then the cry, Back ship! Back ship! sounded almost unanimously on board the Halbrane. Yes, indeed, the recruits from the Falklands demanding that we should turn back, although Hearn was not there to fan the flame of insubordination, and I must acknowledge that the greater part of the old tars seemed to agree with them. West awaited his chief's orders, not daring to impose silence. Gretchen was at the helm, ready to give a turn to the wheel, whilst his comrades, with their hands on the cleats, were preparing to ease off the sheets. Dirk Peters remained immovable, leaning against the foremast, his head down, his body bent, and his mouth set firm. Not a word passed his lips. But now he turned towards me, and what a look of mingled wrath and entreaty he gave me. I don't know what irresistible motive induced me to interfere personally, and once again to protest. A final argument had just crossed my mind, an argument whose weight could not be disputed. So I began to speak, and I did so with such conviction that none tried to interrupt me. The substance of what I said was as follows. No, all hope must not be abandoned. Land cannot be far off. The icebergs which formed in the open sea by the accumulation of ice are not before us. These icebergs must have broken off from the solid base of a continent or an island. Now, since the thaw begins at this season of the year, the drift will only last a short time. Behind them we must meet the coast on which they were formed. In another twenty-four hours, or forty-eight at the most, if the land does not appear, Captain Len Guy will steer to the north again. Had I convinced the crew, or ought I, to take advantage of Hearn's absence, and of the fact that he could not communicate with them, to make them understand that they were being deceived, and to repeat to them that it would endanger the schooner if our course were now to be reversed. The boatswain came to my help, and in a good-humoured voice exclaimed, "'Very well reasoned, and for my part I accept Mr. Jorling's opinion. Assuredly, land is near. If we seek it beyond those icebergs, we shall discover it without much hard work or great danger. What is one degree further south? when it is a question of putting a hundred additional dollars into one's pocket. And let us not forget that if they are acceptable when they go in, they are none the less so when they come out. Upon this, Endicott the cook came to the aid of his friend, the boatswain. Yes, very good things indeed are dollars, he cried, showing two rows of shining white teeth. Did the crew intend to yield to Hurley-Gurley's argument? or would they try to resist if the Halbrane went on in the direction of the icebergs? Captain Len Guy took up his telescope again, and turned it upon these moving masses. He observed them with much attention, and cried out in a loud voice, Steer south-south-west! West gave the orders to execute the manoeuvres. The sailor hesitated an instant, then recalled to obedience. They began to brace the yards, and slack the sheets and the schooner increased her speed. When the operation was over, I went up to Hurley-Gurley, and, drawing him aside, I said, Thank you, boatswain. Ah, Mr. Jorling, he replied, shaking his head, it is all very fine for this time, but you must not do it again. Everyone would turn against me, 
even Endicott, perhaps. I have urged nothing, which is not at least probable, I answered sharply. I don't deny that fact, Mr. Jorling. Yes, Hurliguerly, yes, I believe what I have said, and I have no doubt but that we shall really see land beyond the icebergs. Just possible, Mr. Jorling, quite possible. But it must appear before two days, or on the word of a bosun, nothing can prevent us from putting about. End of chapter 19, part 1「Chapter nineteen part two of an Antarctic mystery This is the Librivox recording. All Librivox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit Librivox.org. An Antarctic mystery by Jules Verne. Chapter nineteen part two Land During the next twenty four hours the Halbrane took a south southwesterly course. Nevertheless, her direction must have been frequently changed and her speed decreased in avoiding the ice. The navigation became very difficult so soon as the schooner headed towards the line of the bergs, which it had to cut obliquely. However, there were none of the packs which blocked up all access to the icebergs on the 67th parallel. The enormous heaps were melting away with majestic slowness. The ice blocks appeared quite new to employ a perfectly accurate expression, and perhaps they had only been formed some days. However, with a height of 150 feet, their bulk must have been calculated by millions of tons. West was watching closely in order to avoid collisions, and did not leave the deck even for an instant. Until now Captain Langey had always been able to rely upon the indications of the compass, the magnetic pole still hundreds of miles off, had no influence on the compass, its direction being east. The needle remained steady and might be trusted. So, in spite of my conviction, founded, however, on very serious arguments, there was no sign of land, and I was wondering whether it would not be better to steer more to the west, at the risk of removing the halbrane from that extreme point where the meridians of the globe cross each other. Thus the hours went by and I was only allowed forty-eight. It was only too plain that lack of courage prevailed, and that every one was inclined to be insubordinate. Another day and a half, I could no longer contend with the general discontent. The schooner must ultimately retrace her course towards the north. The crew were working in silence, while West was giving sharp orders for manoeuvring through the channels, sometimes luffing in order to avoid a collision now bearing away almost square before the wind. Nevertheless, in spite of a close watch, in spite of the skill of the sailors, in spite of the prompt execution of the manoeuvres, dangerous friction against the hull, which left long traces of the ridge of the iceberg, occurred. And, in truth, the bravest could not repress a feeling of terror when thinking that the planking might have given way, and the sea have invaded us. The base of these floating ice-mountains was very steep, so that it would have been impossible for us to land upon one. Moreover, we saw no seals, these usually very numerous, where the ice-fields abounded, nor even a flock of the screeching penguins, which, on other occasions, the halbrane sent diving by myriads as she passed through them. The birds themselves seemed rarer and wilder. Dread, from which none of us could escape, 
seemed to come upon us from these desolate and deserted regions. How could we still entertain a hope that the survivors of the Jane had found shelter, and obtained means of existence in those awful solitudes? And if the Halbrane were also shipwrecked, would there remain any evidence of her fate? Since the previous day, from the moment our southern course had been abandoned, to cut the line of the icebergs, a change had taken place in the demeanour of the half-breed, nearly always crouched down at the foot of the foremast, looking afar into the boundless space. He only got up in order to lend a hand to some manoeuvre, and without any of his former vigilance or zeal. Not that he had ceased to believe that his comrade of the Jane was still living. That thought never even came into his mind. But he felt by instinct that the traces of poor Pym were not to be recovered by following this course. Sir, he would have said to me, this is not the way. No, this is not the way. And how could I have answered him? Towards seven o'clock in the evening, a rather thick mist arose. This would tend to make the navigation of the schooner difficult and dangerous. The day, with its emotions of anxiety and alternatives, had worn me out. So I returned to my cabin, where I threw myself on my bunk in my clothes. But sleep did not come to me, owing to my besetting thoughts. I willingly admit that the constant reading of Edgar Poe's works, and reading them in this place, in which his heroes delighted, had exercised an influence on me which I did not fully recognize. Tomorrow the forty-eight hours would be up, the last concession which the crew had made to my entreaties. "'Things are not going as you wish,' the boatswain said to me, just as I was leaving the deck. "'No, certainly not, since land was not to be seen behind the fleet of icebergs. If no sign of a coast appeared between these moving masses, Captain Len Guy would steer north tomorrow.' "'Ah, uh, were I only master of the schooner!' if i could have bought it even at the price of all my fortune if these men had been my slaves to drive by the lash the halbrane should never have given up this voyage even if it led her so far as the point above which flames the southern cross my mind was quite upset and teemed with a thousand thoughts a thousand regrets a thousand desires i wanted to get up but a heavy hand held me down in my bunk and I longed to leave this cabin, where I was struggling against nightmare in my half-sleep, to launch one of the boats of the Halbrane, to jump into it with Dirk Peters, who would not hesitate about following me, and so abandon both of us to the current running south. And, lo, I was doing this in a dream. It is to-morrow. Captain Len Guy has given orders to reverse our course. After a last glance at the horizon, one of the boats is in tow. I warn the half-breed, we creep along without being seen. We cut the painter. Whilst the schooner sails on ahead, we stay astern, and the current carries us off. Thus we should drift on the sea without hindrance. At length our boat stops. Land is there. I see a sort of sphinx surmounting the southern peak. The sea sphinx. I go to him. I question him. He discloses the secrets of these mysterious regions to me. And then the phenomenon whose reality Arthur Pym asserted, appear around the mystic monster. The certain flickering of vapours, striped with luminous rays, is rent asunder, and it is not a face of superhuman grandeur which arises before my astonished eyes. It is Arthur Pym, fierce guardian of the South Pole, 
flaunting the ensign of the United States in those high latitudes. Was this dream suddenly interrupted, or was it changed by a freak of my brain? I cannot tell. But I felt as though I had been suddenly awakened. It seemed as though a change had taken place in the motion of the schooner, which was sliding along the surface of the quiet sea, with a slight list to starboard, and yet there was neither rolling nor pitching. Yes, I felt myself carried off, as though my bunk were the car of an air-balloon. I was not mistaken, and I had fallen from dreamland into reality. Crash succeeded crash overhead. I could not account for them. Inside my cabin the partitions deviated from the vertical, in such a way as to make one believe that the halbrane had fallen over on her beam ends. Almost immediately I was thrown out of my bunk, and barely escaped splitting my skull against the corner of the table. However, I got up again, and, clinging to the edge of the door-frame, I propped myself against the door. At this instant the bulwarks began to crack, and the port side of the ship was torn open. Could there have been a collision between the schooner and one of those gigantic floating masses which West was unable to avoid in the mist? Suddenly loud shouts came from the after-deck, and then screams of terror in which the maddened voices of the crew joined. At length there came a final crash, and the halbrane remained motionless. I had to crawl along the floor to reach the door and gain the deck. Captain Len Guy, having already left his cabin, dragged himself on his knees, so great was the list to port, and caught on as best as he could. In the forepart of the ship, between the forecastle and the foremast, many heads appeared. Dirk Peters, Hardy, Martin Holt, and Endicott, the latter with his black face quite vacant, were clinging to the starboard shrouds. A man came creeping up to me, because the slope of the deck prevented him from holding himself upright. It was Hurlygurly, working himself along with his hands like a top man on a yard. Stretched out at full length, my feet propped up against the jamb of the door, I held out my hand to the boatswain and helped him, not without difficulty, to hoist himself up near me. "'What is wrong?' I asked. "'A stranding, Mr. Jorling. "'We are ashore.' "'Ashore presupposes land,' replied the boatswain ironically, "'and so far as land goes, there was never any, "'except in that rascal Dirk Peter's imagination. "'But tell me what has happened.' We came upon an iceberg in the middle of the fog, and were unable to keep clear of it. An iceberg, boatswain? Yes, an iceberg, which has chosen just now to turn head over heels. In turning, it struck the halbrane and carried it off, just as a battledore catches a shuttlecock. And now here we are, stranded at certainly one hundred feet above the level of the Antarctic Sea. Could one have imagined a more terrible conclusion to the adventurous voyage of the Halbrane. In the middle of these remote regions, our only means of transport had just been snatched from its natural element and carried off by the turn of an iceberg to a height of more than one hundred feet. What a conclusion! To be swallowed up in a polar tempest, to be destroyed in a fight with savages, to be crushed in the ice, such are the dangers to which any ship engaged in the polar seas is exposed but to think that the halbrane had been lifted by a floating mountain, just as that mountain was turning over, was stranded, and almost at its summit. No, such a thing seemed quite impossible. 
I did not know whether we could succeed in letting down the schooner from this height, with the means we had at our disposal. But I did know that Captain Len Guy, the mate and the older members of the crew, when they had recovered from their first fright, would not give up in despair, no matter how terrible the situation might be. Of that I had no doubt whatsoever. They would all look to the general safety. As for the measures to be taken, no one yet knew anything. A foggy veil, a sort of greyish mist, still hung over the iceberg. Nothing could be seen of its enormous mass, except the narrow craggy cleft in which the schooner was wedged, nor even what place it occupied in the middle of the ice-fleet, drifting towards the southeast. Common prudence demanded that we should quit the halbrane, which might slide down at a sharp shake of the iceberg. Were we even certain that the latter had regained its position on the surface of the sea? Was her stability secure? Should we not be on the lookout for a fresh upheaval? And if the schooner were to fall into the abyss, which of us could extricate himself safe and sound from such a fall, and then from the final plunge into the depths of the ocean? In a few minutes the crew had abandoned the halbrane. Each man sought for refuge on the ice slopes, awaiting the time when the iceberg should be freed from mist. The oblique rays from the sun did not succeed in piercing it, and the red disk could hardly be perceived through the opaque mass. However, we could not distinguish each other at about twelve feet apart. As for the halbrane, she looked like a confused, blackish mass, standing out sharply against the whiteness of the ice. We had now to ascertain whether any of those who were on the deck at the time of the catastrophe had been thrown over the bulwarks and precipitated into the sea. By Captain Len Guy's orders, all the sailors then present joined the group in which I stood with the mate, the boatswain, Hardy, and Martin Holt. So far this catastrophe had cost us five men. These were the first since our departure from Kerguelen, but were they to be the last? There was no doubt that these unfortunate fellows had perished, because we called to them in vain, and in vain we sought for them, when the fog abated along the sides of the iceberg, at every place where they might have been able to catch on to a projection. When the disappearance of the five men had been ascertained, we fell into despair. Then we felt more keenly than before the dangers which threatened every expedition to the Antarctic zone. "'What about Hearn?' said a voice. Martin Holt pronounced the name at a moment when there was general silence. Had the sailing master been crushed to death in the narrow part of the hold, where he was shut up? West rushed towards the schooner, hoisted himself on board by the means of a rope hanging over the bows, and gained the hatch, which gives access to that part of the hold. We waited, silent and motionless, to learn of the fate of Hearn, although the evil spirit of the crew was but little worthy of our pity. And yet, how many of us were then thinking that if we had heeded his advice, and if the schooner had taken the northern course, a whole crew would have not been reduced to take refuge on a drifting ice-mountain. I scarcely dared to calculate my own share of the vast responsibility, I who had so vehemently insisted on the prolongation of the voyage. At length the mate reappeared on deck, and Hearn followed him. By miracle, neither the bulkheads nor the ribs nor the planking had yielded at the place where the sealing-master was confined. Hearn rejoined his comrades without opening his lips, and we had no further trouble about him. 
Towards six o'clock in the morning the fog cleared off, owing to a marked fall in the temperature. We had no longer to do with completely frozen vapour, but had to deal with the phenomenon called frost rime, which often occurs in these high latitudes. Captain Len Guy recognised it by the quantity of prismatic threads, the point following the wind, which roughened the light ice-crust, deposited on the sides of the iceberg. Navigators know better than to confound this frost-rime with the hoar-frost of the temperate zones, which only freezes when it has been deposited on the surface of the soil. We were now enabled to estimate the size of the solid mass on which we are clustered like flies on a sugar-loaf, and the schooner, seen from below, looked no bigger than the yawl of a trading-vessel. The iceberg of between three and four hundred fathoms in circumference measured from one hundred and thirty to one hundred and forty feet high. According to all calculations, therefore, its depth would be four or five times greater, and it would consequently weigh millions of tons. This is what had happened. The iceberg, having been melted away at its base by contact with warmer waters, had risen little by little. Its centre of gravity had become displaced and its equilibrium could only be re-established by a sudden capsize, which had lifted up the part that had been underneath, above the sea-level. The halbrane caught in this movement was hoisted as by an enormous lever. Numbers of icebergs capsized thus on the polar seas, and form one of the greatest dangers to which approaching vessels are exposed. Our schooner was caught in a hollow on the west side of the iceberg. She listed to starboard, with her stern raised and her bow lowered. We could not help thinking that the slightest shake would cause her to slide along the slope of the iceberg into the sea. The collision had been so violent as to stave in some of the planks of her hull. After the first collision, the galley, situated before the foremast, had broken its fastenings. The door between Captain Len Guy's and the mate's cabins was torn away from the hinges. The top-mast and the top-gallant-mast had come down after the backstays parted, and fresh fractures could plainly be seen as high as the cap of the masthead. Fragments of all kinds, yards, spars, a part of the sails, breakers, cases, hen-coops were probably floating at the foot of the mass and drifting with it. The most alarming part of our situation was the fact that of the two boats belonging to the Halbrane, one had been stove in when we grounded, and the other, the larger of the two was still hanging on by its tackles to the starboard davits. Before anything else was done, this boat had to be put in a safe place, because it might prove our only means of escape. As a result of the first examination, we found that the lower masts had remained in their places, and might be of use if ever we succeeded in releasing the schooner. But how were we to release her from her bed in the ice and restore her to her natural element? When I found myself with Captain Len Guy, the mate, and the boatswain, I questioned them on this subject. "'I agree with you,' replied West, "'that the operation involves great risks, but since it is indispensable, we will accomplish it. I think it will be necessary to dig out a sort of slide down to the base of the iceberg.' "'And without the delay of a single day,' added Captain Len Guy. "'Do you hear, boatswain?' said Jem West. "'Work begins to-day.' "'I hear, and every one will set himself to the task,' replied Hurley-Gurley. "'If you allow me, I shall just make one observation, Captain.' "'What is it?' "'Before beginning the work, 
let us examine the hull and see what the damage is and whether it can be repaired for what use would it be to launch a ship stripped of her planks which would go to the bottom at once we complied with the boatswain's just demand the fog having cleared off a bright sun then illuminated the eastern side of the iceberg whence the sea was visible round a large part of the horizon here the sides of the iceberg showed rugged projections ledges shoulders and even flat instead of smooth surfaces giving no foothold however caution would be necessary in order to avoid the falling of those unbalanced blocks which a single shock might set loose and as a matter of fact during the morning several of these blocks did roll into the sea with a frightful noise just like an avalanche on the whole the iceberg seemed to be very steady on its new base so long as the centre of gravity was below the level of the water-line there was no fear of a fresh capsize i had not yet had an opportunity of speaking to dirk peters since the catastrophe as he had answered to his name i knew he was not numbered among the victims at this moment i perceived him standing on a narrow projection needless to specify the direction in which his eyes were turned captain len Kai, the mate the boatswain hardy and martin holt whom i accompanied went up again towards the schooner in order to make a minute investigation of the hull on the starboard side the operation would be easy enough because the halbrane had listed to the opposite side on the port side we would have to slide along to the keel as well as we could by scooping out the ice in order to ensure the inspection of every part of the planking after an examination which lasted two hours it was discovered that the damage was of little importance and could be repaired in short time two or three planks were only wrenched away by the collision in the inside the skin was intact the ribs not having given way our vessel constructed for the polar seas had resisted where many others less solidly built would have been dashed to pieces the rudder had indeed been unshipped but that could be easily set right having finished our inspection inside and outside we agreed that the damage was less considerable than we feared and on that subject we became reassured reassured yes if we could only succeed in getting the schooner afloat again end of chapter nineteen part two Chapter Twenty, Part One of An Antarctic Mystery or the Sphinx of the Ice Fields. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. An Antarctic Mystery by Jules Verne, Part One. Unmerciful Disaster. In the morning after breakfast, it was decided that the men should begin to dig a sloping bed which would allow the halbrane to slide to the foot of the iceberg. Would that heaven might grant success to the operation! For who could contemplate without terror having to brave the severity of the austral winter, and to pass six months under such conditions as ours on a vast iceberg, dragged none could tell whither? Once the winter had set in, none of us could have escaped from that most terrible of fates, dying of cold." at this moment dirk peters who was observing the horizon from south to east at about one hundred paces off cried in a rough voice lying too lying too what could the half-breed mean by that except that the floating mass had suddenly ceased to drift as for the cause of this stoppage 
it was neither the moment to investigate it, nor to ask ourselves what the consequences were likely to be. "'It is true, however,' cried the boatswain. "'The iceberg is not stirring, and perhaps has not stirred since it capsized.' "'How?' said I. "'It no longer changes its place?' "'No,' replied the mate. "'And the proof is that the others, drifting on, are leaving it behind.' And, in fact, whilst five or six icebergs were descending towards the south, ours was as motionless as though it had been stranded on a shoal. The simplest explanation was that the new base had encountered ground at the bottom of the sea, to which it now adhered, and would continue to adhere, unless the submerged part rose in the water, so as to cause a second capsize. This complicated matters seriously because of the dangers of positive immobility, were such that the chances of drifting were preferable. At least in the latter case there was some hope of coming across a continent or an island, or even, if the currents did not change, of crossing the boundaries of the Austral region. Here we were, then, after three months of this terrible voyage. Was there now any question of trying to save William Guy, his comrades on the Jane, and Arthur Pym? was it not for our own safety that any means at our disposal should be employed and could it be wondered at were the sailors of the halbrane to rebel were they to listen to hearn's suggestion and make their officers or myself especially responsible for the disasters of this expedition moreover was it likely to take place since notwithstanding their losses the followers of the sealing-master were still a majority of the ship's company the question I could clearly see was occupying the thoughts of Captain Langai and West. Again, although the recruits from the Falklands formed only a total of fourteen men, as against the twelve of the old crew, was it not to be feared that some of the latter would take Hearn's side? What if Hearn's people, urged by despair, were already thinking of seizing the only boat we now possessed, setting off towards the north, and leaving us on this iceberg? It was then of great importance that our boat should be put in safety and closely watched. A marked change had taken place in Captain Langai since the recent occurrences. He seemed to be transformed upon finding himself face to face with the dangers which menaced us. Up to that time he had been solely occupied in searching for his fellow countrymen. He had handed over the command of the schooner to West, and he could not have given it to anyone more zealous and more capable but from this date he resumed his position as master of the ship and used it with the energy required by the circumstances in a word he again became sole master on board after god at his command the crew were drawn up around him on a flat spot a little to the left of the halbrane in that place the following were assembled on the senior's side martin holt and hardy rogers francis gratien Berry, Stern, the cook, Endicott, and I may add Dirk Peters, on the side of the newcomers, Hearn and the thirteen other Falkland sailors. The latter composed a distinct group. The sealing master was their spokesman, and exercised a baneful influence over them. Captain Len Guy cast a stern glance upon the men, and said in a sharp tone, "'Sailors of the Halbrane, I must first speak to you of our lost companions.' Five of us have just perished in this catastrophe. "'We are waiting to perish in our turn in these seas, where we have been dragged in spite of—' "'Be silent, Hearn!' cried West, pale with anger. "'Or if not—' "'Hearn has said what he had to say,' Captain Len Guy continued coldly. "'Now it is said, 
and I advise him not to interrupt me a second time. The sealing-master might possibly have ventured on an answer, for he felt that he was backed by the majority of the crew. But Martin Holt held him back, and he was silent. Captain Len Guy then took off his hat and pronounced the following words, with an emotion that affected us to the bottom of our hearts. We must pray for those who have died in this dangerous voyage, which was undertaken in the name of humanity. May God be pleased to take into consideration the fact that they devoted their lives to their fellow-creatures, and may he not be insensible to our prayers. Kneel down, sailors of the Halbrane. They all knelt down on the icy surface, and the murmurs of prayers ascended towards heaven. We waited for Captain Langai to rise before we did so. Now, he resumed, after those who are dead come those who have survived. To them I say that they must obey me, whatever my orders may be, and even in our present situation I shall not tolerate any hesitation or opposition. The responsibility for the general safety is mine, and I will not yield any of it to anyone. I am master here, as on board. On board when there is no longer a ship, muttered the sealing-master. You are mistaken, Hearn. The vessel is there, and we will put it back into the sea. Besides, if we had only a boat, I am the captain of it. Let him beware who forgets this. That day Captain Len Guy, having taken the height of the sun by the sextant, and fixed the hour by the chronometer, both of these instruments had escaped destruction in the collision, obtained the following position of his ship. South latitude, 88 degrees, 55 minutes. West longitude, 39 degrees, 12 minutes. The Halbrane was only at 1 degree 5 minutes, about 65 miles from the South Pole. All hands to work, was the captain's order that afternoon, and everyone obeyed it with a will. There was not a moment to lose, as the question of time was more important than any other. So far as provisions were concerned, there was enough in the schooner for 18 months on full rations, so we were not threatened with hunger, nor with thirst either notwithstanding that, owing to water-casks having been burst in the collision, their contents had escaped through their staves. Luckily the barrels of gin, whisky, beer, and wine, being placed in the least exposed part of the hold, were nearly all intact. Under this head we had experienced no loss, and the iceberg would supply us with good drinking-water. It is a well-known fact that ice, whether formed from fresh or salt water, contains no salt owing to the chloride of sodium being eliminated in the change from liquid to the solid state. The origin of the ice, therefore, is a matter of no importance. However, those blocks which are easily distinguished by their green colour and their perfect transparency are preferable. They are solidified rain, and therefore much more suitable for drinking water. Without doubt our captain would have recognised any blocks of this description, but none were to be found on the glacier owing to its being that part of the berg which was originally submerged and came to the top after the fall. The captain and West decided first to lighten the vessel, by conveying everything on board to land. The masts were to be cleared of rigging, taking out, and placed on the plateau. It was necessary to lighten the vessel as much as possible, even to clear out the ballast, owing to the difficult and dangerous operation of launching. It would be better to put off our departure for some days, if this operation could be performed under more favourable circumstances. 
the loading might afterwards be accomplished without much difficulty. Besides this, another reason, by no means less serious, presented itself to us. It would have been an act of unpardonable rashness to leave the provisions in the storeroom of the Halbrain, her situation on the side of the iceberg being very precarious. One shake would suffice to detach the ship, and with her would have disappeared the supplies on which our lives depended. On this account we passed the day in removing casks of half-salted meat, dried vegetables, flour, biscuits, tea, coffee, barrels of gin, whiskey, wine and beer from the hold and storeroom, and placing them safely in the hammocks near the Halbrain. We also had to ensure our landing against any possible accident, and, I must add, against any plot on the part of Hearne and others to seize the boat in order to return to the ice barrier. We placed the long boat in a cavity which would be easy to watch, about thirty feet to the left of the schooner, along with its oars, rudder, compass, anchor, masts, and sail. By day there was nothing to fear, and at night, or rather during the hours of sleep, the bosun and one of the superiors would keep guard near the cavity, and we might rest assured that no evil could befall. The 19th, 20th, and 21st of January were passed in working extra hard in the unshipping of the cargo, and the dismantling of the halbrane. We slung the lower mast by means of yards forming props. Later on, west would see to replacing the main and the mizzen masts, in any case. We could do without them until we had reached the Falklands or some other winter port. Needless to say, we had set up a camp on the plateau of which I have spoken, not far from the Halbrane, sufficient shelter against the inclemency of weather, not unfrequent at this time of the year, was to be found under tents, constructed of sails, placed on spars, and fastened down by pegs. The glass remained set fair. The wind was nor'east, the temperature having risen to 46 degrees, 2.78 degrees Celsius. Endicott's kitchen was fitted up at the end of the plain, near a steep projection by which we could climb to the very top of the berg. It is only fair to state that during these three days of hard work no fault was to be found with Hearn. The sealing-master knew he was being closely watched, and he was well aware that Captain Len Guy would not spare him if he tried to get up insubordination amongst his comrades. It was a pity that his bad instincts had induced him to play such a part, for his strength, skill, and cleverness made him a very valuable man, and he had never proved more useful than under these circumstances. Was he changed for the better? Did he understand that the general good feeling was necessary for the safety of all? I know not, but I had no confidence in him, neither had Hurlygurly. I need not dwell on the ardour with which the half-breed did the rough work, always first to begin and the last to leave off, doing as much as four men, and scarcely sleeping, only resting during meals, which he took apart from the others. He had hardly spoken to me at all since the schooner had met with this terrible accident. What, indeed, could he say to me? Did I not know as well as he that it would be necessary to renounce every hope of pursuing our intended voyage? Now and again I noticed Martin Holt and the half-breed near each other while some difficult piece of work was in progress. Our sailing-master did not miss a chance of getting near Dirk Peters, who always tried his best to escape from him, for reasons well known to me. And whenever I thought of the secret of the fate of the so-called Parker, 
Martin Holt's brother, which had been entrusted to me. That dreadful scene of the Grampus filled me with horror. I was certain that if this secret were made known, the half-breed would become an object of terror. He would no longer be looked upon as the rescuer of the sailing-master, and the latter, learning that his brother, luckily Dirk Peters and myself were the only two acquainted with the fact. While the halbrane was being unloaded, Captain Len Guy and the mate were considering how the vessel might be launched. They had to allow for a drop of one hundred feet between the cavity in which the ship lay and the sea, this to be effected by means of an inclined bed hollowed in an oblique line along the west side of the iceberg, and to measure two or three hundred perches in length. So, while the first lot of men, commanded by the boatswain, was unloading the schooner, a second batch, under west orders, began to cut the trench between the blocks which covered the side of the floating mountain. Floating, I know not why I use this expression, for the iceberg no longer floated, but remained as motionless as an island. There was nothing to indicate that it would ever move again. Other icebergs drifted along and passed us, going southeast, while stars, to use Dirk Peters' expression, was lying too. Would its base be sufficiently undermined to allow it to detach itself? Perhaps some heavy mass of ice might strike it and set it free by the shock. No one could predict such an event, and we had only the halbrane to lie upon for getting us out of these regions. We were engaged in these various tasks until the 24th of January. The atmosphere was clear, the temperature was even, and the thermometer had indeed gone up two or three degrees above freezing point. The number of icebergs coming from the northwest was therefore increasing. There were now a hundred of them, and a collision with any of these might have a most disastrous result. Hardy, the conqueror, hastened first of all to mend the hull. Pegs had to be changed, bits of planking to be replaced, seams to be caulked. We had everything that was necessary for this work, and we might rest assured that it would be performed in the best possible manner. In the midst of the silence of these solitudes, the noise of the hammers striking the nails into the side, and the sound of the mallet stuffing tow into the seams, had a startling effect. Seagulls, wild ducks, albatross, and petrels flew in a circle round the top of the berg, with a shrill screaming, and made a terrible uproar. When I found myself with West and the captain, our conversation naturally turned on our situation and how to get out of it and upon our chances of pulling through. The mate had good hopes that if no accident occurred, the launching would be successfully accomplished. The captain was more reserved on the subject, but at the thought that he would have to renounce all hope of finding the survivors of the Jane, his heart was ready to break. When the halbrane should be ready again for the sea, and West should inquire what course he was to steer, would Captain Lenguy dare to reply, to the south? No, for he would not be followed either by the new hands or by the greater portion of the old members of the crew. To continue our search in this direction, to go beyond the pole, without being certain of reaching the Indian Ocean instead of the Atlantic, would have been rashness, of which no navigator would be guilty. If a continent bound the sea on this side, the schooner would run the danger of being crushed by the mass of ice before it could escape the southern winter. Under such circumstances, to attempt to persuade Captain Lenguy to pursue the voyage would only be to court a certain refusal. It could not even be proposed. 
now that necessity obliged us to return northwards and not to delay a single day in this portion of the antarctic regions at any rate though i resolved not again to speak of the matter to the captain i lost no opportunity of sounding the boatswain often when he had finished his work hurly-gurly would come and join me we would chat and we would compare our recollections of travel End of chapter 20 part 1